If you'll find your place in your Bible with me this morning at the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, we're going to read the first seven verses in just a few minutes as we continue in this series, The Good Life. In the first two chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who is the author of this book, was looking for meaning and purpose for life in all the wrong places. He was living as a practical atheist, if you will. He was living as if there is no God. He, didn't, he believed there was a God, but he was living at that moment of his life as if there was no God. And to find meaning and purpose, he had to find it what he called under the sun. That meant he only saw life from man's perspective. He wasn't looking at it from God's point of view. And the result was that he came up empty every single time. You and I will come up empty every time we look for the meaning and purpose in life in the things that are under the sun. And Solomon talks about that in the first two chapters. In chapters 3 and 4, he deals with the matter of injustice and inequities, with isolation. And he reminds us that God is in charge of all the seasons of our lives, that he is sovereign over all the seasons of our lives. And those seasons have a tendency to change. And we've seen them over the course of our lives, those seasons changing. But he also reminds us that ultimately there is a set day when God will put all things right. And I'm thankful that there will be that day. It may be that it's many years yet future, or it may be very near when God's going to come, Christ is going to come, and he's going to be the judge, and he's going to set all of these matters right. But when you get to chapter 5, you begin to hear him talking about this matter of approaching God. And he's going to say something in chapter 5, these first seven verses of chapter 5, that I want to spend a few minutes today because we today have come to approach God. We will leave and we will live our lives every day seeking to approach God in a proper way, in a right fashion. And he tells us that if we don't do so, it's vanity, it's emptiness, it's like grasping after the wind, it's like it's like trying to hold on to a mist, that you will never find the true and deep meaning of what it is to be a follower of Christ and a worshiper of God if you don't understand the words that Solomon gives to us. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there is also vanity, but fear God. And it's those last two words that I want you to get hold of this morning, but fear God. God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask now that in these next few minutes that we spend together that we will recognize that 
we have gathered together as your people in your presence. We really live out our lives every day in worship to you. We have moments in our lives when we sit down with our open Bible, when we bow our heads to pray, and we spend those private moments in worship to you. But Lord, I pray that we'll recognize that as we approach you, that there is a right way to approach you and that we will come before you in a way that pleases you and that we will recognize that while you have given to us access to yourself through your son, the Lord Jesus, that that boldness that we have, that confidence that we have to come into your presence shouldn't become brashness or brazenness. So, Lord, speak to us now and help us to understand what it means to fear God. In your name I pray, amen. I was thinking back across my life, and I have only been a member of three churches in almost 64 years of life. This one I have been a part of the longest, going on 39 years. Prior to that, I was at a church in Atlanta, outside the city of Atlanta, uh, where my parents had moved. And then when I was from birth to 15, I went to a church in the city of Atlanta, Georgia. I was thinking back across those two churches that I had attended with my family during those earlier years of my life. That church from birth to 15 was what I would call a very formal kind of, of a church. I don't mean anything negative by that. I'm not in no way uh, casting a disparity upon that. I'm just saying that it was a much more formal style of worship when you came together with the people of God. Uh, there was a printed bulletin. There was an order of service that was always given out. There was always a prelude. There was always a postlude. There was always a call to worship. There was always the quoting of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, there were hymns and there were special songs that were sung. When the ministers uh, of the church would lead the church in worship, they were wearing their vestments, they were wearing their robes. Uh, there was a split lectern. On one side is where the minister generally, the senior minister, delivered the message. On the other side is where most everything else, announcements and reading of Scripture and other things took place. And at the center of the church was a communion table reminding the people of God that it is the blood, the death, the shedding of the blood of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus that brings us together as one, as the body of Jesus. I was never placed in the nursery at that church. I probably should have been, but I was never placed in the nursery of that church. My mother took me to church, sat on the back pews, and if I got restless as a little boy, a little child, she was quickly out of the auditorium, and uh, she was helping me to get control of myself. And as it got older, getting control of myself sometimes meant a good tongue lashing. You're going to go back in, and you're going to sit down, and you're going to behave. But that was very much the formality that we went through. Uh, my dad was a Sunday school teacher in that church. He led a large class called the Pioneer Class. I attended the Sunday school classes for children in that church. And there was a real sense of formality about that congregation. There was a number of ceremonies that they went through. At the age of 12, there was a confirmation class. And I, would, I went to that class because to be a member of the church, you had to go through as a child, you had to go through that confirmation class. And then you had to be baptized. And 
I went through the confirmation class and came forward with a number of other children, and I was baptized by the sprinkling of water on my head. When it came to the observance of communion, you didn't have it delivered to you at your pews. You came forward and you received it and you would take the elements of the communion and you would kneel at a kneeling bench that was across the front of the church and you would participate in the observance of communion and then you would leave the cup that you had drunk from in a little uh, section of that kneeling bench that had been carved out for you to be able to place those cups and leave them there and they were quickly picked up so that others could come and kneel behind you and they could pray. It was a very formal kind of a congregation. At the age of 15, my family moved out of the city about uh, 20 or 25 miles out into a rural area. The closest church was a church about a mile from the house that my parents had built, just a very modest home that uh, my parents and my sisters and I lived in. And that church would be, become my home, a man who was the music director, who was uh, the youth pastor, minister of music and youth pastor, uh, came over on a Thursday night to band practice at the high school. Thursday night was the night uh, during the summertime was the night of marching band practice. And I was new to the community. I was new to the school. I was new to the band. And some of the kids in the band had told the youth director, the minister of music, that I was new, and so he waited after a Thursday evening practice to meet me, <clears throat> and he invited me to come to church. He introduced himself, obviously. He invited me to come to church. He told me a little bit about the church. He explained to me uh, that there was an orchestra that I could play in, that there was a youth group that I could participate with, and there's a lot of things that were going on in the congregation, and I started attending that church. That church was different than the one I had gone to for the first 15 years. It was less formal. It was more informal. They didn't have a printed order of service, though I'm sure the people that were working on the platform knew exactly what the order of service was. They had a copy of the order of service, but it wasn't something that was handed out. There was no call to worship. There was no organ that was playing loudly. There, there was you know, not the quoting of the Apostles' Creed. We would sing hymns, but oftentimes the hymns were, were tagged on with choruses, modern Christian choruses, what we would call praise songs today. Sometimes we would have testimony services and people would stand up and they would talk about what the Lord was doing in their lives and how the Lord was blessing them or some scripture that they had been reading that God had spoken to them out of. And there was a real freedom in that kind of a service. And it was in that church where on December the 26th, 1973, that I came to understand that I needed Jesus Christ to be my Savior. Not that the other church didn't teach me that Jesus was the Savior. It just didn't click for me until that point in my life, and I trusted in Christ as my Savior. I look back across those experiences. I was in that church for 10 years, from 15 till 25, and at 25, I've been here since then. But I look back across the experience of those two churches, and I realized that those two churches taught me something and more importantly, my parents taught me something that's a value that I hope I never forget, a value that I hope I've passed down to my own family, and a value that I hope is always something that's found in our church as a congregation. And that value is that we have a sense of the fear of God. I can remember that fear being worked out in practical ways in my family. For instance, 
that we weren't allowed to put anything or lay anything on top of the Bible. This was the word of the living God. And while it's printed on paper and bound with leather or maybe a hardback binding, it nevertheless contains on its pages the very words of God. And so you, you couldn't use it as a coaster to sit your drinks on. You couldn't put any other book on top of it. I wasn't allowed to use a lot of the slang that I hear today. Things have changed a lot, I understand. But I wasn't allowed to use a lot of that slang because as you couldn't use God's name in vain, using it in a cursing way, to use some of those slang words, which some were derivatives of the name of God and others sounded like they were derivatives of the name of God, I was never allowed to use that kind of terminology in addressing God. And when we went to church, no matter whether it was the first church for the first 15 years of my life or for the next 10 years of my life, I was always told when you go to church, you do your best, you look your best. Not that you have to wear a tie and a coat, but you recognize that the gathering of the people of God, the worship of God, is something unique and something that's special. And you're coming together, not just into another casual setting, you're coming together into the presence of the Almighty God who was there to meet with you and you to meet with Him. And I'd have to dress up. I couldn't wear those blue jeans and I could, that had holes in them, you know. I couldn't just wear a T-shirt to church. I, I, had to, I had to dress up to some degree to display that there was a sense of the fear of God in my heart that I recognized that I was coming into the presence of the Almighty God. You're saying, Pastor, are you suggesting that all of those things are necessary today? No, that's, that's not what I'm saying because it's not about the outward forms it's about the inner heart that's most important to me. The heart that comes before God in recognizing what Solomon says here at the end of verse 7, but fear God. What does it mean to fear God? To fear God means that you take him seriously. To fear God means that you have a sense of awe and a holy caution that oversettles you because it arises arising in you from the realization of the greatness of God. He says a little earlier here in verse 2, For God is in heaven and you on earth. <clears throat> God is in heaven and you on earth. That's a statement not about distance. Because there are plenty of scriptures that says that God is with us every single day. He never leaves us and he never forsakes us. But it's a sense of perspective that we recognize that there is something holy and righteous and just and good and merciful and loving about God that makes him greater than we are. He is greater and we are lesser. And therefore we approach him with that sense of the respect that he deserves and the reverence that he deserves that we take him seriously and I fear sometimes that there's been such a shift in the conversation of the church that we've lost some of that fear of God and Solomon says that to come before God in such a way without a sense of the fear of God is foolishness as a matter of fact, the fear of God is something that's repeated a number of times in this book. If you turn over to chapter 7 and look at verse 18, chapter 7, verse 18, he says, it's good that you grasp this, 
and also not remove your hand from the other. For he who fears God will escape them all. Or if you look at chapter 8 and you look at verse 12, he says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Or if you look at chapter 12, what we'll look at later on in this series of messages, what is the conclusion of this entire journal? What is the grand lesson that Solomon wants to communicate to us about the true meaning and purpose of life? He comes in verse 13 and he says of chapter 12, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is, ma this is man's all. Fear God. Take him seriously. Have a reverence for who he is. Make sure that there's a sense of awe and a holy caution when you enter into his presence. And if you don't pay any attention to what we do every Sunday on this platform, I hope that you will from this day forward because we seek to plan every service so that not only draws you into worship, but it helps you to recognize the greatness of God. It helps you to recognize that he is one who is one to be reverenced and one to be respected and one that we should fear. I was reading recently, and I wasn't even studying for this particular message, but I came across this article. It was actually given to me. It was written by a young woman who uh, defines herself as being a millennial. Now, I always have trouble when it comes to these different age brackets. A millennial, I think, is someone who's between about 21 years of age and maybe 35, 36 years of age. She looked like she was on the younger end of that bracket. At least her picture looks younger. Of course, I use younger pictures when I put them out as well. <laughs> but she had some profound things to say about the shift that's gone on in worship in our churches and why there's so much emptiness in the lives of so many people. I can't read you the whole article. I'm going to be jumping into the, uh, into the middle of this article. It was very long, very detailed, very thorough. But I want you to listen to the words of this young woman who says she is a millennial. There's been a shift in the conversation of the church over the last few decades. It's not entirely the fault of millennials like myself but we've confirmed the tone of it. It is both subtle and obvious, depending on who you ask. It's the shift from a celebration of God, his majesty, kindness, greatness, and grace, to the celebration of man. The millennial gospel spends more time talking about our weakness, our struggle, and our habits than it does about the preeminence of God's character. We know a lot about being relevant. We know a lot about discipleship and church planning and being real with one another, but that's the problem. Our new Christian reality revolves around us. Jesus is there in name, yes. He's part of our lives, but the I am of our conversations is more often I am learning and I am struggling 
than an active acknowledgement of I am that I am. She continues, who is the greatest, God or us? We say God, of course, but do our worship services, actions, and thought patterns reflect this? Is he really the central person in the church today, or is he simply the vehicle for more Christianized conversation about us? My fear for millennials, she says, is that we have turned God into a spiritual Pez dispenser. Any of you remember the Pez dispensers? We have turned God into a spiritual Pez dispenser. Our worship is full of good motives and feelings, and we wonder why those emotions come and go, while we struggle to sense the Spirit's presence on a consistent basis. May I suggest a solution? If we were to focus all our attention, if we were to focus our full attention on the greatness of God's character, the I am that I am, would we not respond like Moses? Would we not be so overwhelmed by the Spirit of God, by his magnanimity and power, that we would recognize just how holy our lives are supposed to be? We don't need Jesus to tell us more about us. We need Jesus, period. Gospel truth is not a one-time stop for salvation. It is a daily reality. It is a morning choice to come and adore him, and in so doing, find who we are. We are free because he bought us. We are chosen because he sought us. We are loved because he is righteous. And we should respond, she says, not with tell me more about me, but with holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worship him, she says. Bow your knees. Bow your head. Bow your heart. Stop using him to find yourself and simply seek his face. I read the words of that young woman many decades younger than I am. And the thought that came to my mind is there's hope. There's hope for God's church. There are some who are recognizing that the worship services are not first and foremost about us, the worship services, and the worship personally and privately when we're meeting with God or we're living out our lives on a daily basis is first and foremost about him and about who he is. It's about recognizing the greatness and the grandeur of the God we call our God. You might think that that's too harsh, that surely in this day of grace things have changed but you would be wrong. I understand that the way things were done under the Old Testament economy and the way, the way things are done in the New Testament economy have differences. I understand that there are distinctions between the two. Aren't you grateful that you don't have to bring an animal sacrifice with you today in order to be able to meet and to appease God? 
that Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary once for all through the shedding of his blood and the giving of his body and the dying for mankind's sin has paid the price of sin forever for all men and anyone can receive it. Any person can come to Jesus and trust in him and become a child of the living God. Aren't you thankful that God has done that? But let's never forget that even the grace that we experience that comes from the God of heaven above is a grace that ought to cause us to have a sense of awe and reverence and fear for the Almighty God. It was Derek Kidner, who is a commentator and a scholar, who writes about the book of Ecclesiastes, and this is what he says, no amount of emphasis on grace can justify taking liberties with God. For the very concept of grace demands gratitude, and gratitude cannot be casual. Gratitude cannot be casual. Think about that for a moment. When's the last time that you did something for someone else, and they came to you, and they sort of flippantly said, oh, thank you. I appreciate what you did. Oh, yeah, it's over. Yeah, I'm glad you did it. And you walked away from that conversation feeling, were they really grateful? Were they really appreciative? Did they really understand what was done for them? And yet too often, that's the way we approach God. And while grace is certainly different than, than the law, and aren't we grateful we live in the day of grace, grace requires gratitude, and gratitude cannot be something that's casual. We don't just show up at church in a casual fashion. I'm talking about in our attitudes. In a casual fashion, just to go through the motions of a worship service, we gather with the people of God on the Lord's Day to stop and to remember this is about God. This is about his son. This is about the great love that he's given to us and the grace that he's, he's bestowed upon us and we come before him not in a casual fashion, a casual spirit, but in a respectful attitude and a respectful spirit. Oh, but pastor, I know that what you're saying is true, but doesn't the New Testament tell us that we can come to God freely, that we can come to God boldly, and we can call him our Father? It goes even beyond that, friends. It says we can call him Abba, Father. Abba is one of the most endearing terms. It would be very much like the difference between you talking about your father and you talking about your daddy. There's a distinction in those terms sometimes, not always, but sometimes there's a distinction in those terms, recognizing, yes, that he is your daddy. There is a relationship that you have with the Father, and that relationship gives you a freedom to come before him and to enter into his presence. Hebrews tells us that Jesus went into that holy place, and he opened a way for us to come to the Father, and he uses the word boldly. He says in Hebrews chapter 4 that we can come before God and asking for the things that we need, and he'll give us grace to help in our time of need. And he tells us to come boldly. But coming boldly means coming confidently, knowing that God will accept us and that God will receive us and God will hear us, but it never means coming to God brazenly or brashly or indifferently or carelessly. 
You know, I loved my daddy. He's been gone a little over 10 years. My daddy was my mentor. He was my counselor. He was my hero in so many ways. What I'd give for one more conversation with my dad. I know some of the things I'm facing and thinking about in my own life, he'd have the right answer if I could just hear his voice. But you know, I had a freedom to come to my dad, and I'm thankful for the freedom that I had with him. I had an openness and a communication. Every Saturday, he called me when we were early on in our ministry. Every Saturday, he'd call me, and we'd have a conversation every Saturday morning. Wasn't the best morning for me? Because Saturdays is my final day of preparation. I've got everything in order, but I'm trying to get my mind all around it so that I can deliver the messages on Sunday. But we would spend those few minutes on every Saturday morning talking, and I had a liberty, and I had a freedom to talk to my father, but I never lost the sense of respect or the sense of reverence. This is my father. This is my friend. This is my daddy. But this is a man that I also reverence and I respect. And God invites us into his presence. He wants us to come before him. He wants us to have boldness to enter into his presence. He wants us to know that we will be received and that we will be accepted, but we can never enter into his presence in a careless or an indifferent fashion. Charles Swindoll said, I sometimes think about people that have been of great help to my spiritual life. I thank God for them. And I ask myself, why do they mean a lot to me? They each put another rung in my ladder as I was climbing toward maturity. Now listen, they were people who convinced me that I was to take God seriously. They were the people who built the most into my life and still do. It wasn't so much that they never had fun. A lot of these people had a well-exercised sense of humor. But when it came to God, they modeled the same message. We don't play games here, Chuck. Get serious. If God says it, believe it, do it. And they taught the seriousness of God. They taught the significance of the fear of God entering in with a reverence and a respect, coming boldly and coming freely, knowing you'll be welcomed, but recognizing that he is in heaven and that you are on earth and you're to watch your step. That's what he means in verse 1. Walk prudently. It means to watch your step, to stay alert. Don't be dull or insensitive. Don't just come to go through the motions, whether it's your private worship or it's the public gathering for worship. Don't just go through the motions. He says, draw near, verse 1, to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. To bring your sacrifice that lacks meaning and lacks sincerity and lacks reality and lacks reverence. For they do not know that they do evil. He says, verse 2, don't be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. There's time to come before God and to be silent to listen to what God has to say, not to come and pour out all of your complaints to God, not to pour out all of your complaints about a worship service, 
I'm reminded about the woman at the well. Jesus goes through Samaria to meet this woman, and he has this conversation that ultimately brings her to salvation, and it brings the message of salvation to that entire city. But on that well, talking with that woman, Jesus said that God is seeking those to worship him. But God is not seeking those to worship him in song and dance. Those may be a part, and there may be a place for those at times in worship. He didn't say he was seeking those to worship him in song and dance, in entertainment. He said he's seeking those to worship him, how? In spirit. That's from the inner man. That's the sincerity of the heart. That's coming from within you, the reverence and respect and the awe that you have of the God of heaven in spirit and in, what's the next word? Truth. Truth. Too often today we've jettisoned truth in order to entertain people into the church because if we can't capture their fancy, then they don't have time for the God of heaven. And if your entertainment isn't good enough for me, then I'll find another place that entertains me better. Folks, that's not the way God intends for us to worship. That's not how God intends for us to approach him. I don't know if you noticed it as we read through chapter 5, but he called this kind of worship, he called it evil at the end of verse 5. In verse 6, he called it sin. Don't let your mouth cause your flesh to sin. At the end of verse 6, he says that God will destroy the work of your hands. In other words, the wrong approach to God won't go unpunished. It won't go unnoticed. God intends for us to come, yes, joyously, yes, happily, yes, with fellowship with fellow believers. He intends for us to come into his presence recognizing that he is in heaven and we are on earth. And he has opened the way through his son, Jesus Christ, to have access to the, to the God of the universe, but we come with a reverential spirit and a sense of awe. This is not about how you feel today. This is about what we are giving to God when we gather in his presence. I wondered if that was borne out in the New Testament, Now I invite you to turn with me for a moment to the book of Acts, chapter 5. The church is worshiping. There's many financial needs that are represented. And people are taking pieces of their property and they're selling their property and they're bringing the proceeds of the sale. It wasn't required. This isn't socialism. They weren't required to sell this property. They did so willingly. And they brought the proceeds of the sale to the feet of the apostles. And the apostles would take that money and then they would use it to feed and care for, especially those of the faith the new believers in Christ, many of which were losing their jobs. They were losing their livelihoods because they, became, because they became followers of Jesus Christ. And so there were those who had to be cared for, and they were selling their properties in order to do so. Well, a husband and a wife by the name of Ananias and Sapphira decided they would sell a piece of property. But here's what they did. They said, okay, we're going to take the proceeds, but we're going to keep a part for ourselves, and we're going to give a part to God. 
Now, they had every right to do that, didn't they? They could have kept the part for themselves and kept the other part or sent the other part to to the church for the purpose of distribution. But when they come to present their gifts, they don't come telling that this is what we're doing. They come telling that we are giving all to God. Ananias shows up first. And he says, I'm giving everything to God. And Peter says, are you giving everything? Are you really giving everything? And then he says something so vitally important. Are you going to lie to the Holy Spirit? He knows your heart. He knows what's going on within you. He knows what's happening at this very moment within you. Are you going to lie to the Holy Spirit? And what happens to Ananias? He falls down dead. The ushers. come and get him and they carry him out and they bury him a little while later his wife Sapphira comes and she gives the same story are you saying the same thing that your husband said you could just tell the truth you could just say we kept the portion for ourselves and we're giving the difference to the church for the purpose of feeding the poor and helping those that have lost their jobs you could have just done that but they came both of them saying we gave everything and it wasn't but a few moments and Sapphira lay dead in the aisle of that worship service and the ushers came back and they carried her out how'd you like that ushers <laughs> instead of carrying out offering plates you're carrying out bodies and you notice what happens in verse 11 verse 10 first then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last and the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out buried her by her husband so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. You know, that'd make you think the next time you came to worship, don't you think? Aren't you thankful that God isn't judging today as severely as he did in the first century when the church was new and the church was so pure? Aren't you thankful that when we stand and we sing, great is thy faithfulness, but in our hearts we have no respect or reverence for God, that we don't just fall out in the pew? Because it's not the true expression of the attitude of our hearts. Look over at chapter 10, Acts chapter 10. You meet a man by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile. Cornelius is a man who's seeking after God. He wants to know God. And in verse 2, he says he's a devout man, one who, what, feared God with all his household and who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Well, you know the story. Ultimately, Cornelius will send for Peter, and Peter will come, and Peter will deliver the message of the gospel of Jesus. And Cornelius and his household and those that are around Cornelius will come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice what he says in verse 34 of chapter 10. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. That doesn't mean they're saved that way by their works. It means that there's no nationality. There's no group of people that are excluded from this incredible plan of the forgiveness and the grace of God. Everybody has access, but it requires reverence for God. Or look at chapter 12 for a moment. Chapter 12 and verse 20. And just notice the negative side of it. Now Herod, that's King Herod, 
had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's, by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. He's now speaking to the people of Tyre and Sidon. And the people kept shouting to Herod, that is. They kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Then immediately, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. But then notice verse 24, but... But the word of God grew and multiplied. I ask you a question. Does God take worship seriously? Does the approach to God matter? Does it matter that our hearts, we can have different forms from where I was as a a newborn to 15 years of age or from 15 to 25 or where we have been for the first 39 years, there can be different forms, but all of those forms should be leading us in some fashion to recognize that we have come into the presence of the God of heaven and there should be a reverence and a respect and an awe for who he is and there should be a gratitude that we have even the opportunity to enter his presence because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. For our sins. I take you back to Ecclesians 5, Ecclesiastes 5, and I read to you again those seven verses, and I want you to listen carefully. Walk prudently, watch your step, stay alert. Don't be dull or insensitive when you go to the house of God. Draw near to hear. Before we say anything, we come to listen than to give the sacrifice of fools. We don't bring animals, but we bring the sacrifice of our bodies, don't we? Romans 12, 1 and 2. The sacrifice of our money, don't we? Philippians 4, 18. The sacrifice of our praise, don't we? Hebrews 13, 15 and 16. The sacrifice of a broken heart, Psalm 57, verse 17. We come bringing our sacrifices to God, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth. He is greater than you are. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by his many words. That phrase, a dream comes through much activity, is a little difficult to translate. It can mean that you have lots of dreams at night because you're so busy during the day and they tell us that you dream all night long even though you don't remember. But probably I I think better understood because of what he says in verse 7. He's talking about daydreams. People who come and they have this mental doodling going on. When you gather with the people of God or you come to the worship of God, there shouldn't be a a verbal doodling. There shouldn't be a mental doodling going on in your mind. You should be focused on God. It is God we've come to worship. When you make a vow, verse 4, to God, do not delay to pay it. He has no pleasure in fools. Hey, listen, we're not talking about foxhole religion. We've made vows that we're going to meet with God on a consistent daily basis. We made vows to our spouses that we would 
stay with them till death does us part, no matter what the circumstances may be. We made vows that we would raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, and we would point them to Christ again and again and again. We made vows that we would serve God and we would honor God with our lives. We come making these vows. Don't delay to pay it, he says, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Don't let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God, that may be the priest or the messenger of the priest who heard the vow that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams, these, de- these mental doodlings, in the multitude of dreams and in many words, there is what? There's worship that's just empty. It's a mist. It's a going through the motions. It's an entertainment. But you never saw the reality of the one true God. But instead, watching your step, listening more than you do talking, honoring the vows that you make to God, excluding the mental doodlings, thinking about what we're going to do this afternoon, thinking about what we did last week, thinking about what's still got to be done in the weeks ahead, we come to put our attention on God because we reverence him and we respect him. And there's a sense of awe about him. There's a holy caution about us because we take God seriously. Can I just finish here in just a moment. Your children will never take God seriously if you don't take God seriously. They won't. Their forms of worship may turn out to be a little different than your forms of worship, but they will never take God seriously if you brush aside the things that God says and you do more talking than you do listening to what God is telling you and you make promises to God that you don't fulfill and you don't show a heart attitude every day of the week that you come into the presence and you live your life as worship to the one who is deserving alone of worship. So how can you help me, Pastor? Number one, prepare your heart to worship. Prepare your heart to worship. We need to stop. We need to silence our hearts and our minds. We need to get ourselves focused. You can't watch late night television on Saturday night and get up on Sunday morning, especially much of what's on late night television anymore, and get up on Sunday morning expecting to meet with God and show him reverence and respect. Number two, plan to listen for his voice. When you come to the gatherings of the people of God or you're sitting alone in that place where you meet with God, just you and God alone, Don't do all the talking. Close your mouth and listen to what God is saying. God still speaks today. Number three, praise him for who he is. Just take a few moments. I don't have time to take you to Acts chapter 4, but take a few moments of your time with God and just spend time praising him. 
not asking him for anything, not telling him about all of your problems. There's time for that. There's a place for that. But just praising him for who he is and perform. Number four, perform what you promise. Do what you told him you're going to do. Lord, I'm going to keep my word. I may miss it sometimes. I may fail at times. I may have to confess and ask you to forgive me at times. But I'm going to get up, and I'm going to keep moving, and I'm going to keep honoring, and I'm going to keep keeping my word to you. Can I finish by just saying this? There's a verse about the fear of God that's found in the book of Hebrews. And some of you need to hear this verse. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you don't know Jesus Christ, the fear you need to have today is falling into the hands of the living God and not being ready to be welcomed into his presence. The only way you can have that kind of confidence, the only way you can have that kind of peace and that kind of security is if you have personally trusted in Jesus Christ, received Jesus Christ to be your Savior. If you haven't done that, can I tell you, we're not talking about gloomy-faced people. We're not talking about people who have you know, a miserable life and their shoulders are slumped over and they can hardly get up and move from one day to another. Don't look at me. That's me most days. That's not how God intends for us to live our lives. But God intends for us to live our lives in a recognition that he is in heaven and we are on earth and he is greater than we are and we enter his presence with a reverence and a respect for who he is.